Well, good morning, everyone. Welcome back to Hiawatha. To most of you, if you're just visiting for the first time today, welcome to our church. My name is Chris. I'm one of the pastors here. And we, um, preaching-wise right now, as, as a church, we're in the middle, kind of approaching the middle of a series in the book of Judges, uh, which is the seventh book of the Bible, uh, of the Old Testament. If you want to turn there in a, a phone app or a, a Bible, that, that'd be great. Um, don't have to. I'll have this on the screen here in a second. But um, it's been a great series uh, so far, and I'll, I'll do my best to kind of catch you up if you're brand new to the Bible or to this book, or it's just been a while, uh, summarizing a few things here before we get into week two of, of Gideon. If you are here last week, we were introduced to Gideon and his call into kind of being a, a judge and a savior figure, and today we'll, we'll continue the story. Uh, but Judges uh, is basically a book about redemption. Uh, it's, it's a word we use in English uh, to, I think, have a wider semantic range than I think what the Bible does, but just kind of means like salvation. Redemption, though, biblically, though, is used a little bit more in a pointed way to mean to buy back from slavery, to buy out of oppression, to liberate. That's the way God uses it first back in the book of Exodus when it kind of first, that theme sort of first comes up and he talks about redeeming Israel out of, out of Egypt and then uh, comes up here in, in Judges as well, at least thematically, but, but by word as well. And then in the New Testament, too, uh, when we talk about how Jesus saves us and what he actually did, it wasn't generic salvation, it was redemption. Uh, which means to, to buy out of slavery, our slavery being, being to sin. So Judges is a collection of narratives. Notice it's plural, Judges, uh, here. It's a collection of narratives about God saving his people from oppressive surrounding nations and their sin, because it's their sin, their propensity to worship themselves and to go their own way and to harm people and all kinds of, of wicked things religiously and just lifestyle-wise, and, and we've listed out some of these things throughout the series, it's just bad stuff. It's their sin that's what gets them into these predicaments in the first place that sort of uh, elicits uh, God's uh, response and the conditional kind of uh, punishment he brings upon them because of their, um, their propensity to do these things and just flat out reject him. And so it's, when we talk about God liberating, it is kind of on face value. It's these physical enemies that, that face the, the people of Israel, but behind the curtain of that, it's their sin. It's their wickedness. It's their, the, the evil inside their hearts wrapped around their DNA. And so we've been, we've been connecting those dots throughout the series as we as Christians look back at this and understand it meaning-wise. But even right here in the book of Judges, it's clear sin is the main enemy. It's not the Midianites, it's not the Philistines, it's not the Canaanites, as we've been seeing ultimately, rather, but it's the evil in the world itself. So judges then are savior figures, uh, not uh, courtroom judges like we think about them if you're brand new to the book. Judges here biblically means deliverer or tribal chief or military captain or leader, someone God assigns uh, by name. He raises these people up to fight on behalf of the people of Israel. So it's kind of a headship idea. They're doing the fighting, sometimes with an army behind them. In today's case, a very small army. We'll talk about that. But, uh, but really, it's, it's this headship idea that sometimes very single-handedly, they, with God's help, fight on behalf of the people of Israel and save and liberate. So that they, they de-oppress in, in this kind of high-scale level. So theologically, then, uh, we, we've been saying this throughout the series just to kind of help give some framework for understanding what this means when you talk about story arc, like in, in a good book, maybe you guys have read, or just a good movie, like every, every story has this kind of basic pattern of what we call rising action, the climax, falling action, and then resolution. And so basically every story has that kind of arc to it, or narrative arc. You may have heard this, these, these terms before. The Bible's no exception because the Bible's the greatest story of all time, and it's the story that all of the stories come from. 
And so it has the same idea, Christ being that climax. And so these judges' narratives are a part of what we call this rising action. So they, they build up to the, the climax, and then when the climax is there, they, they give way to it. The climax fulfills what all of the rising action was intending to just kind of say and, and build towards. It does it in a couple of ways, Judges does. One, by just being a bunch of really bad stories, full of a ton of wickedness, a ton of evil, a ton of dysfunction, a ton of hopelessness, to make us yearn for a better kind of judge, or maybe an ultimate judge that actually doesn't die. So all these judges, even the best of them, eventually die. And Judges is very careful to note how they die. They don't live forever. And so what, what the book kind of, at least implicitly, makes us yearn for is a judge who is good, perfectly, and who lives forever. And that's what we have in Christ. And so the rising action of this book, the earlier parts of the biblical narrative, and this is one story with many parts, but the earlier parts help to lead us uh, to, to that climax in that way. By way of the bad stories, but also by way of typifying. And so we've been seeing how the judges themselves then theologically are Christ figures. What, what they're doing and how they save and, and being like a head figure and fighting themselves for the sake of people, that's exactly what Jesus does. Even when they're called a deliverer, Jesus is called a deliverer. He, he is the true and better one. And so we've been uh, linking these things for the sake of meaning because the Bible does this to itself but also to help tell the story and to really get at what God's intending this, this to be for the New Testament church, in particular, uh, just today for us. So, so theologically, judges are Christ figures, but we saw this last week too, and we've been kind of saying this throughout the series, but want to try to heighten this with the story of Gideon, because we'll really see next week, these guys are starting to really downward spiral themselves too. They start off, you know, kind of good, or at least their sin's not blatant, or it's not mentioned, but... Now we're going to see next week, um, we're starting to see Gideon's fear and trepidation, but uh, next week things get really bad for him as well. And, and Jephthah, if you know his story, and then Samson, it just gets um, r- really bad. All along, Christ is still imaged, but it, it, it gets worse. So there are also pictures of us then. This is why I'm going here, because it's complicated when we say, where's Jesus in these stories, or what's the meaning? It's not just looking at the judge being a Christ figure, but looking at these guys or gals as pictures of us. Uh, in their sin, experiencing then the grace of God. And in that way, thematically, the story is driven forward uh, too. So a way to look at this then, just kind of by way of mini chart here, with Gideon in focus, and he's the focus of today, I'll get to him in a minute, but Gideon is a Christ figure in that he fights the Midianites for Israel, like Jesus fights our sins for us. We 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 don't lay a finger on that. We'll see that theme today later. But he's also a man. He's also a sinner and he experiences God's grace in different ways and that points to, to us. So as a man, he's like us too uh, or a, kind of a forerunner of a Christian or, or the church. So we'll especially look at that latter piece today uh, but understand if you're brand new to this book, that top line is a major, major, major thing we're supposed to see in this book. This is how the New Testament reads the old. It's how the whole thing hangs together and it's part of how we see the gospel play out uh, in really cyclically in, in these narratives. So with that said, uh, today's title, Gideon's Fleeces and His Small Army. Uh, two big things, we'll come back to that. Judges 6.36 to 7.23 is the passage. I'm skipping the middle section for time's sake, so probably best to follow along on screen today, but if you want to follow along in your Bibles, that's great. Just note that I'm going to skip something here uh, a little further down. So, so we'll start in Judges 6 here, verse... 36. The context, again, really quick, is he was called last week uh, by God and this angel of the Lord, who is Jesus pre-incarnate, appears, and some cool stuff happens there. 
And then he, in the cover of darkness, starts to destroy these Midianite idols. And so he's kind of like battling what these, these uh, Midianites, these, these Canaanites, these land occupiers, these very wicked people are worshiping instead of the, the, the one true God of the universe. So he kind of tears down these fashioned bulls and Ashtaroth poles and different things that were being bowed down to. And now, today is kind of like the battle proper, uh, basically. But not before we get to some interesting dialogue between Gideon and God. So we'll start there in, in verse 36. Then Gideon said to God, If you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said, behold, I am laying a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. If there is dew on the fleece alone, and it is dry on all the ground, then I shall know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said. And it was so. When he rose early the next morning and squeezed the fleece, he wrung enough dew from the fleece to fill a bowl with water. Then Gideon said to God, let not your anger burn against me. Let me speak just once more. Please, let me test just once more with this fleece. Please let it be dry on the fleece only, and in all the ground let there be dew. And God did so that night. And it was dry in the fleece only, and in all the ground there was dew. Then Jeroboam, that is Gideon, and all the people who were with him rose early and encamped beside the spring of Harad. And the camp of Midian was north of them by the hill of Morah in the valley. The Lord said to Gideon, the people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand. Lest Israel boast over me, saying, my own hand has saved me. Now therefore proclaim in the ears of the people, saying, whoever is fearful and trembling, let him return home and hurry away from Mount Gilead. Then 22,000 of the people returned, and 10,000 remained. And the Lord said to Gideon, The people are still too many. Take them down to the water, and I will test them there for, for you. And any one of whom I say to you, This one shall go with you, shall go with you. And any one of whom I say to you, This one shall not go with you, shall not go. So he brought the people down to the water, and the Lord said to Gideon, Everyone who laps the water with his tongue as a dog laps, you shall set him by himself. Likewise, everyone who kneels down to drink. And the number of those who lapped, putting their hands to their mouths, was 300 men. But all the rest of the people knelt down to drink water. And the Lord said to Gideon, With the 300 men who lapped, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hand. And let all the others go, every man, to his home. So the people took provisions in their hands and their trumpets. And he sent all the rest of Israel, every man, to his tent, but retained the 300 men. And the camp of Midian was below him in the valley. So Gideon and the hundred men who were with him, at this point actually split up into three groups of a hundred, so that's why it says a hundred here. Gideon and the hundred men who were with him came to the outskirts of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch, and when they had just set watch, and they blew the trumpets and smashed the jars that were in their hands. Then the three companies blew the trumpets and broke the jars. They held in their left hands the torches and in their right hands the trumpets to blow, and they cried out, a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. Every man stood in his place around the camp, and all the army ran. They cried out and fled. When they blew the 300 trumpets, the Lord set every man's sword against his comrade and against all the army. And the army fled as far as Bet Shittah toward Zerorah, as far as the border of Abel Meholah by Tabat. And the men of Israel were called out from Naphtali and from Asher and from all Manasseh, those are three tribes of the twelve of Israel, and they pursued after Midian. Okay, so here's the, the big question for today then. I've kind of been alluding to this already, but, but here it is. What gospel theme, so the gospel is the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ that benefits sinners who trust in it. The, the, the gospel itself 
How is that imaged here? Or what gospel themes arise in this chapter? Not just as we were saying, not just as we see Gideon as a chosen by God savior figure who fights on behalf of Israel. He is that. But also as we look at Gideon, the man, the sinner and the recipient of, of God's grace. Uh, so what figures, themes, motifs then basically point us ahead in that rising action kind of way to the, the climax, as we were saying before. I think there are two big ones today, and the title of the sermon kind of outlined it, and that insert you have, if you want to follow along there, take notes, please feel free to do that, but are really two things. Gideon's fleeces we'll look at, so the whole fleece thing, the conversation he has with God, and then Gideon's small army, whenever God says, the army's just too big, I can't use it, which is really interesting. We'll come back to that piece too. So first, Gideon's fleeces. So let's uh, talk about this and ask the question, what's going on? Here, but let me just read again from verse 2, the, or sorry, verse 36. Then Gideon said to God, If you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said, behold, I am laying a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. If there is dew on the fleece alone, and it's dry on all the ground, then I shall know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said. So he does this one more time where he flips it around and requests kind of the opposite to happen, and God honors that, and and answers, and, and then at that point, Gideon has this sign, and he goes, goes into battle. All right, so it's a, kind of a difficult passage to interpret. It's, you know, it's possible if you've heard of Gideon before, like peripherally, you may have heard of some fleece things kind of associated with him. Uh, and this is, this is where it comes from, just these few verses here in, at the end of Judges 6. Um, but it's a tricky one to interpret, as we not just understand historically kind of what's going on, but also theologically. Like, what does this mean on a theology sort of level? for us as Christians, sort of reading backwards now, uh, gospel themes into these, into these stories. Um, on, you know, on one hand, or on kind of on one side of things, some believe Gideon's lack of faith is what's in focus here. So the question there is, shouldn't it be enough that God said he'd be with him? Why the test? And twice. And then on the other side, others wonder if there's a lesson here for us in how to pray and try to kind of emulate that uh, in the way that they themselves kind of uh, test God, look for signs of his blessing and direction in their life by uh, laying fleeces of various kinds and, and stuff like that. All right, but here, here's what I want to, I'll just say this to start. We'll kind of go and we'll defend this and then offer a third way. But I think both of these, and I'll call them extremes, both of those extremes are wrong. Both of those extremes are, are unhelpful, inaccurate, not, just not what's going on here. The text itself just doesn't support this, nor does uh, the rest of the Bible, and, and we'll look at some of those things. Uh, and then we'll, again, come back to this, thir this third way. So on the one hand, if it was wrong for Gideon to do this, why did God respond and not express anger? If it was wrong for Gideon to do this, why did God respond and not express anger or correct him in any way? And he does it twice. What we have to remember, in Gideon's day, there are many other types of competing religions, uh, various gods of nature, worshipped by the surrounding nations and cultures. So with that gods of nature idea in mind, Gideon was seeking to ensure that the God who spoke to him, looked more at this last week, who spoke to him, was sovereign or powerful over these nature gods. In other words, that he was able to bend and even break the laws of nature. Hence the request here to only have dew on the fleece and not on the surrounding ground and then vice versa. Because dew is not selective, Right? You go out to your yard in the morning, it's not like selective in this big, big, big open area. If you put down something, it's going to be dew-filled as well, right? And the grass around it. God is doing, he's breaking the laws of nature, bending 
the, the laws of dew points and so forth and humidity and however that works. I'm not a meteorologist here, but whatever. Uh, dew is not selective. So, so on the one hand, this is actually then for Gideon, he, he's seeking to confirm something with God. He's, it's actually an expression of faith. And, and actually Hebrews 11 in the New Testament confirms this. It says about Gideon that Gideon by his faith conquered kingdoms. He's actually celebrated in the New Testament as a man of trust, dependence in God, and, and a man of faith. And so it's not his like, bad actions aren't highlighted here in Hebrews 11, nor is God again rebuking Gideon for, for doing this. So the issue then is not Gideon's amount of faith, but simply that he has faith in the one true God, not just any God. So it, this is about confirmation here. It reminded me of when, uh, some of you guys know this story, but after Jesus was raised from the dead, some of the disciples knew and they saw him, and, and they came back to this guy named Thomas, who was one of Jesus' disciples, and they said, hey, he's alive, we've seen him. And Thomas says, I'm not going to believe it until I can put my hands in his side and see the holes, the nail holes in his hands. You guys read this? It's a very interesting post-resurrection appearance kind of interaction with Jesus and, and this guy who, who has some doubt but wants, wants confirmation. But if you look at that story, Thomas gets a bad rap sometimes, but I think unnecessarily so. I mean, there's probably, he's a sinner, so there might be some kind of levels of doubt there. He didn't have to like be, you know, kind of working out in what he was saying. But, but Jesus never rebukes him. Like in that, in that exchange, Jesus is not saying, you know, you're doing it wrong, Thomas, or you, you have weak faith. Thomas just wants to know that this is real. Is Jesus really alive? In other words, I'm not interested in fairy tales or moral lessons. I want what's real. I want to see him. Either he's alive and it means everything, or he's not and it means nothing. That's, what he, that's, that's like the type of faith he has, the type of like request that he's giving to the disciples. And Jesus honors that. He appears right after, doesn't rebuke Thomas, and says, here I am. You've asked and I'm delivering. You're seeing me in the flesh, actually risen, not a ghost. This isn't like a lesson about rising up from your difficult pasts and, and being strong, like that's like, as if that's what the resurrection means in, in the Christian faith. But it actually means that Jesus himself rose from the dead and there's hope then for dead people, like the walking dead, like us right now, but, but actually dead people as well. Like there's hope for us. So Jesus then is, is, there's a little bit different narratives, but I think you see a type of faith that's resembled there as well. There's a particular faith in Gideon and in Thomas it's not about sinful doubt, but a particular faith. They're, they're wanting confirmation. They're wanting to know what's real, and reality and truth and history and truth are tied together. So that's the one piece. Uh, Gideon's not doing anything wrong here. Uh, he actually is faithful. He's faith-filled, and the Bible's acknowledging this. And God is, too, with his actions. But on the other side of things, so with all that said, on the other side of things, or on the other hand, this is not something to imitate directly in prayer either. You know, God, God, saying, God, if you want me to move to Kenya, make my phone ring in the next 10 seconds is a terrible prayer. Don't ever pray that. The Bible never says to do that. It never models it, you know, well. That's like voodoo theology. That's not like Christian theology. Um, you know, actually, I watched, my family and I watched um, Ferdinand. You guys seen that movie, the illustrated show, or movie the other day? It's, it's okay. It's pretty good. Uh, but it's, uh, there, there's this point in there where, 
this guy wants a sign about if he should like you know go somewhere. I'm forgetting the whole context. I'm just thinking of it. I thought of this first service. I don't even know the movie first service, but I'm getting better now. Forgetting some of it. Anyway, uh, he looks at this tree that has an orange on it and says, if that orange drops or doesn't drop, that orange doesn't drop in 10 seconds, then I'm going to you know, go do this. And then it just drops like after two seconds. You know? So things that shouldn't happen in 10 seconds, like he has like three of those and they do it. Anyway, whatever. It's, it's, it's kind of like that. So don't do that. That, that that's, what this, that's not what this is like saying. There's no lesson in, in how to pray here. Um, this is like a, an epoch. It's a different time. It's an Old Testament time period where you know, Gideon has less of God's progressive revelation, and there's things here that are just different. Um, you know, so don't lay your Vikings jersey on the grass this spring and ask God to put dew on it if they're going to win the Super Bowl or something. Like, that's not the point either. So those aren't prayer gods that God that God's honors, uh, like we're saying. And like we're seeing here, he is honoring it, but those aren't types of, you know, ways of acting and praying and living that God's going to honor. Again, nor are we taught to pray that way in the Bible. So, but, so here's the thing. If it's not, if Gideon's not doing anything wrong, but it's also not an example to follow, well, what is it? And the, the answer is there's a, a, a third way here. A third more Jesus-centered way. And I'll say Jesus or gospel-centered um, answer here. It's just more helpful, more consistent with the storyline. Um, so by faith, Gideon is basically saying, and actually, as you look at Gideon, he's not, this isn't like just asking God for a sign for, you know, to move to Kenya, you know, next year, take this job in Missouri or something. It, it's actually questions about who are you? Are you good? Do you come through on your promises? Are you say who you said you are? Those kind of questions. Again, do you make good on your promises? Will you truly save? That's basically what he's asking here. So it's a much more big picture questions about the nature of God's character and his power to, and his power to save. So have that in mind too as we kind of tie this to our own life here in just a minute. But um, that's, that's an important observation. But with that said, Gideon's basically saying here, as you back up at the big picture, he's saying, use this fleece to show your power over nature. We talked about that with the dew. And to tell me if you are with me to destroy your people's enemies. So two things. This is what the fleeces are, are the whole testing thing's about. To show your power over nature and to, sh- and to show me if you're with me to destroy your people's enemies. Now, with that in mind, thinking about the whole story here. So thinking biblically, theologically, about the climax as we're in part of this rising action part of the story we talked about before. Thinking biblically, theologically, as if it were a smaller story about that way helping to tell a greater story what is the ultimate sign god's ultimate sign that he has power over natural law what's the ultimate sign that that god gives us to show us he has power over natural law in the bible and more than that that he is with us to save us from our true enemy not the midianites but sin and death the answer is two things, uh, one event. The death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's it. You know, th- there is no breaking of natural law greater than what? The resurrection, right? Overcoming death, it's, it's much greater than selective due, you know, but, but that is a part of it. So, so selective due, God's breaking natural law. When God wakes up from death, it doesn't happen. That, that's a, a law of nature, right? Dead things stay dead. But God's stronger than nature. He created everything. It it belongs to him. It belongs to him. It's under his ownership. He can bend it. He can break it. He can reverse it. And he does when he rises his son from the dead 2,000 years ago on that first 
Easter morning. So this is really good news, again, for people who are dead or who are dying, like all of us in the room. The fact that he can do this means he can win dead people back to himself. And all of this then is preceded by another, what I'll call like a, a fleece sign, which is the death of the Lamb of God himself. Jesus is called the Lamb of God many times. Uh, one of my favorites is when John the Baptist sees him coming down to the Jordan to baptize him, and he says, Behold, in John 1.29, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So it, if you're new to the Bible or confused about what Jesus came in the world to do, look at that. This is what he came to do, to take away the sins of the world, not to give you a social agenda, uh, but to take away your sins. That's the gospel. So, but that's what, that, that's the new fleece sign. It's a sign that God, and it's a tie-in Gideon language here uh, a little bit. It's a sign that God would be with us. Remember, he's called Emmanuel, God with us. And, but not just with us, with us to defeat our enemies. The Lamb of God who died on that cross in the place of sinful people like us. So, so here's what this means. Uh, it, it means, like Gideon, because Gideon's looking for assurance. For assurance about God's character, for assurance about his power, and assurance about the battle. This means to us as well that we can have assurance. Assurance about all those things and more. But our sign, though, is not a fleece. It's what the fleece is pointed to. It's the gospel and, and the gospel alone. So just for clarity here, um, our sign is not arbitrary. You know, so Gideon's fleeces are a glimpse. They're a whisper. They're a pointer to a greater reality. Jesus' death and resurrection. It's been passed up by something better the fleeces have. This is why, and so to go back to the whole not the extremes argument, this is why even though Gideon didn't do anything wrong, it's still not something to emulate directly. It's not really about us at all. It's about Jesus and seeing a shadow of him in it. And so Jesus said in his ministry, he talks about signs kind of on this level too, as if all of the signs or ways of God working in the Old Testament, all the promises he makes, all the ways he's working, the many and various ways he does that, are bottlenecked into one person and one event, Jesus Christ and his death and resurrection. So when Jesus talks about signs, he actually speaks to people with really ill motive too, which is why he starts this way. But he says, Jesus speaking, a wicked and evil generation asks for a sign. He said, so people asking about a sign, are you the Messiah? A wicked and evil generation asks for a sign, but none will be given to it except one, the sign of the prophet Jonah. And he explains what that means. For just as Jonah the prophet in the Old Testament was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So this is a really important teaching, guys. I'm speaking to Christians here primarily, but if you're not yet, understand this about the faith. This is important for you too. But for us as Christians, seeking signs, you know, asking questions that Gideon was asking, that maybe some of you are even today, you walked in with these big questions, or um, maybe you're not a Christian yet, and you're asking the question, is Christianity true? Is there validity to this? You know, something like, that's not that far off, really, from what Gideon's asking and kind of what Jesus is addressing here. And that is, this is the sign that tells you all kinds of things about me and God. It, it addresses your deepest longings. It addresses your, your, your most hopeless nights and seasons of life. It tells you about my love. You know, so if you, maybe you guys are asking this, or you know someone who is, help them if, if that's the case. But do you want to know if God is with you? Have you ever wondered that? 
is God like truly with you? Do you want to know what his will is for your life? I know many of you do because you asked me this a thousand times. So I know a lot of you are asking that question. It's a great question. But do you want to know what his will is for your life? Do you want to know if he loves you or not? Do you want to know if he's going to come through on his promises? Do you want to know if you're saved? Hear this. There is only one natural law-breaking, sin-destroying, love-embodying sign, the cross and the empty tomb. That's it. That's the sign God gives us. So that means look to it. Don't neglect it. Don't get bored of it. Don't look elsewhere. That's a sign of him answering all those questions and more that I just listed out. And the Spirit of God saying to Gideon, this is how I'm confirming my promise. You know, those were whispers. This is the reality it pointed to. But this is how I'm confirming my promise and showing you my love, showing you my power to be with you, to destroy your sins, ultimately. This is how we see it. There's no other confirmation that's sure-footed as this, nor the confirmation that's as beautiful as this. You know, and I think God will gladly put dew on the fleeces of these things for you every time you doubt his love and every time you forget his grace. He will gladly show you. He will gladly bring you back. He will gladly say, yes, I will answer that prayer. Yes, I will save you in spite of your disbelief, but I will help your unbelief. Yes, I will help you to understand and be wrecked by my love more. Those are great prayers. Pray those. Pray those for me, please. Pray those for this church. But this is the way that we see it. Yeah, there's no other way. And, and so, again, understanding the Bible's one story here is helpful. All the ways God worked in earlier parts of history before this event 2,000 years ago, everything in your Bible before this comes onto the scene, and there are many and various things God's doing, but they all of them bottleneck into this. The person and work and death and resurrection of the Son of God who loved you unto that end, dying in that way among criminals. He loves you, he loves you, he loves you in that capacity. And it's a call to believe that. Okay, Gideon's fleeces. Let's move on to Gideon's small army, a second thing here. In terms of the question, uh, what gospel themes are present in this story? This is, this is fascinating. In verse 2 he says, or it says, the Lord said to Gideon, on the field of battle, he, he's saying this, so kind of on the cusp of, of the war, the people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand. Lest Israel boast over me, saying, my own hand has saved me. And then summarizing, eventually winnowing the large army down from 32,000 to 300. Pretty big winnowing. <laughs> you know, it's not like cutting in half or cutting, you know, cutting free some people just don't know how to fight or something you know, kind of maximizing. Now, this is a pretty large-scale winnowing, you could say, uh, down to 300 guys uh, who, as it says, lap like dogs with the water. I mean, it's a quick thing there. Pro it's probably meaning that they're not smart because they're not looking around like others are. So think about, like, drinking at a, at a river. People that are on their knees and their heads are up, they can, like, look around, you know, for there's, like, a large army right behind you, you know, kind of thing, like, literally in this moment. So, um, but they probably have faith because they weren't scared. So faith-filled, dumb people, basically. Is what, it's kind of what's, which that's kind of like the Christian, right? That's, that's sort of all of our life. So, uh, but that's basically who they were, these 300 guys. Uh, huge 
large-scale large winnowing down to, to 300 men. Okay, so let me just ask the obvious question here. Who talks like this? Who talks like this? Who says, yeah, that's too much oxygen for me to go scuba diving. I need a lot less to make it riskier. Or who says, that's too strong of a rope to use for climbing that super large mountain. I need something that's fraying and really, really weak. Otherwise, I can't use it. Like, who says that? Or who says, like, in, in this, with this metaphor, yeah, that army's too big, too strong. We need to weaken it before going into battle. Who talks like that? No one but God. No one but God. Because while we use strength to save ourselves, God uses weakness. And he does it to demonstrate two things. We'll talk about these. One, to show us that we're saved by grace, God's grace, not by what we do, not by our works, not by our effort, not by our fighting, not by our wisdom, not by our wealth, not by our inherent sense of goodness, none of that, but simply by his grace, which means undeserved merit. It means a gift given to people who don't deserve it, not by our works. This is the message of the Bible in a sentence. It shows it. It says it. It twists that diamond in the light. It says it through figures and events and laws and proverbs and psalms and oracles and prophecies and apocalyptic literature and New Testament letters. But all of that comes to a head at the person and work of Jesus Christ on the cross for us. It's all about it. And then second, to build on that, to show us that his grace looked like his son becoming weak for us on the cross. That's why these stories exist, to show its grace, not works, but to also show that God uses the weak to save the strong. That doesn't just mean it's not like, like a lesson for you to say, all right, well, God, you know, it, I think it, it is kind of that in a sense. You know, I think God uses weak things um, and people to lead, like in 1 Corinthians 1, it says that. He'll use the weak to lead the strong, to teach the same principle. Leaders in churches aren't that great. They're not that smart. I'm very normal and blue-collar. I'm not that great. My wife knows this. Some of you guys know this. If you don't know this, I'm, not, I'm just very, very, very average, slightly below average on pretty much everything in life. And so I think it's by, I'm very sickly. I get sick all the time. I think God just chooses that a lot of times. Not that he can't use strong people either, but I think he just decides a lot of times to use weak. Uh, and maybe in your lives you've noticed this, how in your weakest days you just feel strongest spiritually or something. Like that's just a common thing I hear a lot. And that's not a shouldn't be a surprise. Uh, God uses weak times, and we'll talk more about this. Uh, but the ultimate way he so, so there's a principle there for us. But ultimately, it means he used his son, who became weak though he was strong. He lowered himself. He died a criminal's death on a cross to save us. That, that's that's the ultimate thing here. So some of you guys may have been reminded of this story as we uh, read. It's very similar in Joshua six. Uh, the book right before this is Israel's entering the land, this promised land for the first time. On the west bank of the Jordan, there's this walled city called Jericho. It's the first battle that they fight, but they don't really fight. You guys know the story. There's a, a longer section here in Joshua 6. I encourage you to go read if you'd like. In the context sometimes, basically, God says to, to the whole camp, the whole people, just march around the city once a day. So it makes perfect sense, right? On the seventh day, march seven times. And, and after the seventh time, you march around, uh, blow these trumpets, and when you hear a, 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 the sound of a long blast of the trumpets, have the whole army give a shout, and then the wall of the city will collapse, and the army will go up, everyone straight in. So, classic military strategy, right? <laughs> 
It's like it's ridiculous. It's supposed to be ridiculous. And implied in all of this, and it's explicit elsewhere, very explicit elsewhere in the Bible, implied here, do not touch the walls. Don't lay a finger on the walls. And to borrow from Gideon, or from uh, Judges 7, from Gideon's story, lest you think you had anything to do with it whatsoever. Lest you think that you saved yourselves. Lest you think that you're strong when you're weak. There's a, a strong theme in the Bible uh, of not touching holy things that represent God in the Old Testament, like big mountains or arcs of the covenant or, or things like that. And if you know some of those stories, you know what happens when they touch those things. Not good, right, Mark? Mark's like, ooh, not good. It's just bad. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, they die, right? It's, they, they die. They die. Because touching things that represent God means or implies, I think I'm strong and that I can help God. Touching what represents him means you think you, that you're, you're saying with your actions, I can help him. God's not quite able to save me completely, so I'll atone for some of my sins and, and feel bad about it, and then God will be kind to me to save me. But I do rely a little bit on his blood, that, that kind of idea. Touching things uh, that Israel shouldn't, like, again, structures or parts of the temple or mountains, leads to death because it demonstrates a person's arrogance to think that they could approach God on their own to think they could climb the ladder, to think that they're good, to think that they could help God save. And, and here it's implied in Joshua 6 as well. Don't touch the walls lest you think that it's, that it's by your hand. So it's the same in this story today. Gideon's army was simply too big. If they fought with 32,000 people, they might have been confused as to who actually won the battle. And more than that, if they even fought with their swords, they might have given themselves the glory. So God had them shout and blow trumpets, as you saw in, in uh, I keep wanting to say Gideon 7, Judges 7, you saw them blow the trumpets and shout, and the Midians just started to kill each other and then run. They didn't even use their swords. I mean, put yourself in the scene, guys. Think about if you were there as one of the 300 men. How humbling, exciting but humbling would that have been? Could you in any way go back to the other, what would have been, 31,700 people or whatever it is, and say, yeah, you know, what's up? You know, kind of thing. Like, not at all, right? They did absolutely nothing, just like you and I have done absolutely nothing to save ourselves from our sins. We bring nothing to the table, nothing, except the sin that God had to atone for to bring us back to himself. That's what these stories beat the drum of over and over and over again in a ridiculous way. This is supposed to be ridiculous. It's supposed to be over the top. So it's obvious. Don't touch the walls. Send away 31,000 people so you can face this army of probably 50,000 with chariots of iron and you have sticks. So that you know you don't save yourself. Guys, if you ever wrestle with that idea just being the entry point to Christianity but not the essence, the whole thing, I'd encourage you to go back and actually read your Bible. And see, this is everywhere, everywhere. This theme is everywhere. God's underlining it, highlighting it, shouting it, showing it, and speaking it. So people who are symbolic but also straightforward, I just want to hear it. People are both getting it. You know, it's like he just knows. 
God is good. You know, and, and so I think one of the lessons here we have to think about is, and I'll use, this is actually right from God's words, it's possible to be too strong to be saved. You can't be too weak, but you can be too strong. If you think you're too good, you'll never be a Christian or never stay a Christian. Jesus teaches this a couple of times. Mark 2, I didn't come for the righteous, I came only for sinners. Jesus actually didn't come for you if you think you're good because not that you're not loved and not there's not, not a chance for you. It's just you have to realize you're a sinner before you're saved because God only brings sinners to himself. He doesn't bring people who are self-perceived good, good people. Mark 10, it's easier for the camel to go through an eye of a needle, basically, so in other words, impossible, uh, for a rich person to enter the kingdom. Why? Because rich, rich people, you can define that however you want to. There's, other, there's many ways to be wealthy, but point is, if, if you don't think you're needy, and the essence of Christ, the Christian message is to say, you need something. The, the rich will say, well, I, I don't need anything ever. I just buy whatever I want. But you can't buy the gospel. You can't purchase it. You can't earn it. And so Jesus teaches us here, it's really, really difficult for the rich to be saved. God is able to overcome that, but they have to realize that they're spiritually impoverished or else they'll never, they'll never reach out. So, so all week long, people tell us we're strong. All week long. It, it's in commercials, it's at our jobs, it's in, in books, it's in movies. It's, it's the main point of, like, the human race. Like, if, if, if the human race was a movie, it'd be subtitled, You're Strong, or something. You know, it, it's, it's crazy. Um, all week long, people tell us we're strong. So we need stories like Gideon's to label that a lie and to tell us the truth that were weak but deeply loved by a strong God who became weak like us to die as one of us and save us from our sins. Now one more thing has to be said here before um, uh, I'll conclude with a few things, but one more thing on this topic is, and that is, if all of this is true on the second point of the, the small army idea, if all that's true, one, follow the logic here for a second, and God is love, so if all this is true, one, and two, and God is love, and he loves us, then he will take things away from us sometimes. He will cause us to suffer. He won't answer our prayers in the way that we think he should sometimes, if it will heighten our sense of weakness and neediness so that we might reach out to him and be saved. This is a hard teaching, but it's very important, very important to understand. Or think about it this way. He will winnow the armies of our inner sense of goodness so that you might not boast in yourself but actually be saved by Jesus. He will winnow the armies of our inner, inner sense of goodness so that we might not boast in ourselves but boast in him. More important than our comfort is our salvation. More important than winning things is our salvation. More important than our happiness is our salvation that we live forever with God. And, and this is, hopefully this is good news to you. God knows all of that more than you do, more than I do. And, and, and more good news here is he's not waiting for us to totally agree with what I just said or to understand it. So he will work mysteriously sometimes in the darkness and the pain like he did through his son's death to bring you to himself. And so we see things like this, like, you know, Jesus teaches again in Luke 6, blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. And then Solomon in Ecclesiastes, 
This is why it says this stuff, because sorrow's better than laughter. Actually, says elsewhere in that book, death's better than life. Again, who talks like that? But in, in God's sort of economy, you know, this is actually makes a lot of sense because sorrowful people understand their sin and therefore they understand God's love more and understand God's love is to be happy. But laughing people all the time, comfortable people, don't quite, they don't take the same route a lot of times. Sometimes they do if God's at work and certainly God loves laughter too. But sorrow a lot of times is better than, la- sorrow's better than laughter a lot of times because it gets us to God. All right, a couple things here on... Uh, to wrap this up, two things. Jesus fulfills Judges 7 in a good news way and a warnings way. So let me just read this to summarize for clarity. It's, it's a tough passage. So in, this, in summary, he is the true fleece sign of God, breaking the laws of nature with his miracles, but especially his resurrection, and showing us the true sign of who he is and what it means to be loved, saved, and fought for by God. And that is his own bloody, horrific death among criminals. That's the sign. If you're wondering who the Christian God is, that's where you should go. That's what he's like. Not afraid to enter into messes, horrific nightmares, so that yours might be taken away. And not afraid to suffer excruciating pain on your behalf. He's not ashamed to be called your God. He loves you, he loves you, he loves you. And so he's the true small army of Gideon here as well. Talk about this showing us that it's not by might nor by strength, but by God's spirit that we're saved, and that it was by his weak death that we are made strong in, in his eyes. And, and so Judges 7 means we're saved by grace, not by works. That, that's the good news. And it, it, it's an invitation here, not just to understand the facts of that, but to hear God's voice calling out to you in that, saying, believe this. Would you believe this about me? If you don't think this way, correct your thinking. He's he's a better way of thinking about our lives, a better way of thinking about the world, what it means to be strong, what what it means to be loved, what the essence of Christianity truly is. He's like, and none of us have a perfect, I don't, none of us have a perfect way of thinking about this. So it's an invitation to correct and to change the way we think maybe about the gospel and about God. Or just to be reminded, or maybe for some of you, to believe this for the first time. Believe that Jesus died for your sins and he rose again. That's what defeats your inner Midianites and liberates you at the highest level forever. So believe, believe, believe. And then the warnings. Um, you know, we, we talk about this too, but again, what this is saying, I think, is don't look for signs from God other than the gospel. That's the only sign you'll ever get from him. This doesn't mean that, you know, we can't ask for them in our church to like, you know, should I take this job or not, or I don't know which direction to go, what's the most Christian thing to do. doesn't mean that we can't kind of pursue that stuff too, that's good. But I'm talking about like signs about salvation and signs about the core of the faith and what it really means to be saved and who God is. Um, There's no other way. There's no other place to look. This is, he said, no other sign will be given except the sign of the prophet Jonah. That's it. So this is, again, an invitation to highlight what the climax of the story is and not highlight other things but to highlight the most important part the most important part of your bible is where jesus is on that cross saying some last words and dying for sinners or when other parts of the new testament really theologize about what that meant that is the most important part it's way more important than judges 7 but judges 7 is great because it points to it so it's beautiful and important because it it under it supports it 
It undergirds it. It's a shadow of it. But it is more important. It is more important. So that's why we have to get there every time we talk about this stuff. And then second and final is um, it's possible to be too strong in your eyes for God to save you. So honestly ask yourself, in what ways do you think uh, too highly of yourself? You know, and I say here too, it's, though God can overcome the worst of our unbelief, um, you know, it's God needs to humble first, and he will. So invite that. Um, you know, but if, if you think too highly, how can you confess this to God? Honestly, think this. How can you confess this to God and others and allow the gospel to show you how much it's not about you, how dead you are, but how much you are loved just, just as you are? So again, in a world where we're called to do good, and from a Bible where we're called to do good, do good, but never believe that you are good. Do good, but never believe that you are. Even Jesus says this to the rich young ruler when, when the guy comes up to Jesus and says, good teacher. And Jesus, for crying out loud, says, why do you call me good? Only God is good. <laughs> like, oh, there goes Jesus again. You know, give me a, a tough one to mull on. But, um, but even he says this. It's, it's po- this, this is the problem, I think, is we blend doing good with being good too much, just, just as humans and Christians we do this. We're not good, I mean, at the core. Not that we can never say good job to people anymore. We should do that, but at the core, only God is good, which means, this is why it's important, which means only God can save. If you think you're good, you're this much closer than you were before you thought that thought of thinking you can save yourself. And don't think it's not possible. It's very possible. Happened in Jesus' day. Happens all the time. And so we have to allow the Bible to inform this stuff. Who are we? Who is God? We haven't touched the walls of our salvation, you guys, with one finger. Let that humble you. Let that lead you to rejoice in Jesus, the true fleece sign of God.